You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Web Radio. I'm Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. We've been talking for many weeks around the idea of health insurance reform. How do you finance the health care that you and your family need? Not a lot of discussion around health care reform these days. All the discussion seems to be around the coronavirus, the current health care issue that everybody's been dealing with, that the country's been dealing with. How many people are sick? How many people are going to the hospital? How many people are dying? People who need other care are having to put them off. Elective surgeries need to be scheduled way in advance end of the summer or even fall so that we can ensure that there's room in the hospital to take care to take care of the coronavirus patients. Well, it's time we got back, not only back to work like people are doing, back to school like people are doing, back to sporting events. It's also time we got back to serious health insurance reform. Now, there are a lot of ideas that are sort of floating around out there. But I think if we can just play off of the flexibilities and the creativity that's been developed by the coronavirus situation, maybe we would be able to deal with some of the major issues on health insurance and health care reform. There's one group out there that's been doing quite a bit. The Galen Institute is one that has put forward proposals on health insurance reform. And they put together a group called the Health Policy Consensus Group, trying to develop a consensus around healthcare leaders across the country, trying to get some sort of a movement going to do real private market health insurance reform, which is the topic we've been talking about in this program for months on end now, offering up solutions, big ideas, talking about the secrets of health insurance reform and why there's a lot of forces that work against the individual because laws were written by insurance companies. They were written by lobbyists who really didn't have the interest of consumers at heart in an area like health insurance. Too many people don't understand health insurance. They just know when I've done surveys in the past for many years on the general public around what kind of health insurance do you have? Do you know what the number one answer is? I have good health insurance. The reality is that most people have no clue. So we need some major changes in educating the public around health insurance, what the features are. The only thing more complicated than health insurance, as far as I know, would be property and casualty insurance. Ask somebody sometime what kind of coverage they really have on their car or on their home or sometimes on the business insurance that they have for their board of directors. So there's a lot of complications around insurance that people don't think about, don't really know, and many times don't want to know. They just want to be sure that they're covered. Well, let me walk you through some of the ideas that this health policy consensus group has put together because I think it's both valuable for you to understand. The listeners to this program, I think, have a great insight now after weeks and weeks of talking about alternatives. So let's begin to talk about some of the ideas and how we might be able to move from some of the concepts we've thrown out. As practical as they are, it's going to take a consensus 
of people pushing forward ideas, elected officials picking up and championing the cause, elections that can really make a difference. Well, let's talk about the COVID-19 crisis because it's highlighted the need for flexibility in our health care sector and for public officials to actually do more to empower medical professionals and healthcare innovators to provide the care and coverage that people want and need. There's been a lot of changes that have happened just over the last few months, most of which is behind the scenes, most of which the public doesn't see or know. But if you're really involved in the health care industry, you probably have either heard of, know about, or reflect on some of the changes that have really been beneficial to the need for patient care. So these flexibilities that have been implemented over the last four or five months, these goals must guide our continuing response, not only to the pandemic, but to make broader changes to the health sector going forward. The COVID-19 pandemic has exposed how government red tape gets in the way of a rapid response and interferes with patients being able to quickly and efficiently get the care they need from those they trust. Much can be accomplished when governments enable medical innovators rather than constructing obstacles to their progress. The Trump administration, state leaders, and Congress on a bipartisan basis. Amazingly enough, in this time of division, on a bipartisan basis, have waived hundreds of rules in a race to fight the virus. As the consensus group says, we should never go back to those kinds of restrictions and limitations and obstacles that have created some great advancements in a very short period of time. Instead, both the administration and Congress should make sensible, temporary changes permanent and build on them with additional reforms and flexibility that will free patients and doctors and employees and employers to make it easier to access and develop creative options. I would throw in their insurance companies, change some of the rules and regulations and limitations on insurance companies so they can develop better, more efficient, more affordable products. The Trump administration's latest executive order takes a step in this direction by directing the federal government to continue these deregulatory efforts in the same vigor and resourcefulness, quote-unquote, deployed in the initial phases of the COVID-19 response. Changes should continue to empower the private sector and state and local innovators The approach that's been taken is a federalist approach. The government provides at the federal level some general oversight and suggestions and tries to eliminate federal rules and regulations and leave it up to states and leave it up to local innovators. So that federalist approach in the pandemic response has shown the great strength of our system of government in empowering states and local communities with the flexibility to meet unique challenges as diverse as San Francisco and rural Montana, with the federal government playing a supportive role, not a controlling role. 
That's always the issue in the debate. Do we centralize much of the control of health care? Or do we decentralize it and create an inventive private market? Well, you know, if you've been listening to this program where I stand, it's about decentralizing, eliminating federal regulations, and allowing the private free market to work in its many ways of meeting the needs, the unique needs of each community. In this country of 330 million people and diverse geographies and diverse populations of every race, shape, size, ethnic background, we need something different than one size fits all. We need uniqueness, what I like to call personalized health insurance. We want to be sure that we are personalizing the offerings, both in the insurance products that are sold and in the care that's delivered. People will want different types of care, different types of treatment, inpatient, outpatient, doctor's office, telemedicine, different approaches based upon their personal wants, needs, and desires that ought to be available. And when liberated from these counterproductive rules and regulations, providers and suppliers inside and outside of the health sector are quickly creating new and better solutions. By eliminating many of the barriers, what we're finding is new players will come in, people who maybe didn't involve themselves in the healthcare sector or the insurance sector previously. You know, when markets are opened up and there's a freedom to develop ideas, creative thoughts, new options that are consumer-oriented, and patient-centric, we get new players in the game, and that creates a competition. You know, if you don't have any competition, just a couple of players, they don't want to change the market. Revolutions and changes in the market always occur from the outside players because the people on the inside already have the advantage of market share and dominance. So they don't want to change. They don't want to do anything new and revolutionary. It takes outside competition to generally make those kinds of significant changes. We saw that in the early 2000s with the introduction of health savings accounts and health reimbursement arrangements. New players came in and changed the marketplace in the insurance world, and that can be done again and needs to be done again because those initial disruptors of the market got bought out by other insurance companies and kind of got sidetracked a little bit. Yes, we still have health savings account their important role, but are they being pushed as rapidly and aggressively? Is new legislation being developed to make them more flexible? No, they're not. So we need those kinds of changes to be made. So recognize that in the COVID-19 environment, Countless companies, big and small, have repurposed their manufacturing facilities and accelerated the search for treatments and vaccines. Medical providers, patients, and plans have quickly moved to adopt telemedicine. They can do the same in producing better outcomes, lower costs, and more consumer choices, and make health care and health insurance more accessible. Well, to help Congress and the administration shape the continuing response, this health policy group that I'm talking about offers recommendations to address the immediate crisis and build a foundation for a better health sector moving forward. 
and I would say a better health sector and health insurance sector moving forward. I'd like to go through those and discuss them. Now that we've laid the foundation of how things can develop more rapidly, once we start to peel away the barriers, the restrictions, whether it's from FDA allowing more drugs and medications, or whether it's repurposing for the development of supplies that are needed, whether it's encouraging better research for drugs and medication, all these things are just the tip of the iceberg as to what could be. So let's take a quick break, and let's come back and talk about some of the recommendations that are being made to sort of build on and follow up with this whole idea that's now been ingrained in many policymakers and the recognition of the value of getting rid of some of the restrictions and limitations that have existed, and how it opens up a whole new world of possibilities that can really benefit consumers and patients in the healthcare area. So let's take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back on America's Web Radio. You're listening to Healthcare Insight. See you in a minute. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Let's continue today's discussion on the whole idea of health insurance reform. What's out there? What's possible? What are people proposing? What are some of the new ideas? How does the current environment of having gone through this healthcare pandemic change the landscape? Well, today we're talking about a document that's been put out and coordinated by the Galen Institute. It's a very reputable think tank in Washington, D.C. that focuses a lot on private market solutions and health insurance in particular, but it does many other things. But it's really an expert organization on health insurance reform. They've got a consensus policy group that they've been working with and putting together ideas that hopefully can be taken to the media, be taken to politicians, be taken to the general public. And what we're talking about today are some of the ideas that they've put out that they really would like you as listeners to this program and listeners to many other programs that are interested in policy and making changes to this country around health care. They really want some of this word and some of these ideas to get out and begin to resonate with the general public. So here's a couple of the ideas that they've put together. And they recommend these to policymakers. They recommend them to the general public to provide support to people in the industry to understand and to think about how they could create a better marketplace for consumers. So to make it easier for people to access personal portable health insurance that travels with them from job to job in and out of the labor market, they're really recommending a greater emphasis on individual insurance. It's clear that Americans need more security and control over their health spending decisions with resources that they can draw on in times of medical or an economic crisis. 
Through executive actions, the Trump administration has expanded opportunities for more choices of health coverage, both for small businesses and for individuals. For small businesses under the Trump administration, they signed the executive order to allow for small businesses to join larger insurance pools to get better rates and more flexibility and to give people access to better short-term insurance plans if they are between jobs, if they're self-employed, if they're working in a IT computer industry economy where they can work from any place. If they're retiring early, do they have some options? If they're starting a new business, how do they get insurance, health insurance, while they're starting up a new business? Many people in the past have been locked in to their existing jobs, so they couldn't really change jobs. They couldn't start a new business. They might have an idea of how to create a better product or service. But a real barrier to them was not being able to get individual health insurance. And why is that? Well, it's because many insurance agents don't get paid very much for selling an individual policy. A one-on-one sale doesn't generate enough income for them to emphasize it. Yes, it's available if you go and ask them, but they don't go out and do a lot of selling other than computer-generated phone calls that you might get. And half of those, you better be careful because they could be spam calls. So basically, an insurance agent likes to sell multiple policies at the same time to leverage their time and effort. So they like to at least sell small group plans, if not larger group plans. I've done surveys in this area. And... Insurance agents tell me that they work on a 10-3-1 business model. When I first heard that, I said, what in the world is a 10-3-1 business model? They said, I make 10 phone calls, get three appointments, make one sale. And I don't make enough money in that one sale to make up the hours that I have to put in with the 10 phone calls, the three appointments, and only making one sale. So it has to be that small businesses can gather together and is more likely to sell small businesses through an insurance agent. But if that's not possible, you ought to give people more choices and more education about what's available to them for short-term plans that may only need, they may only need coverage for three or six months while they're between jobs or while their new business is starting up. Or if they're retiring early, they may, may only need a one or two year insurance plan. So these are some flexibilities that are already in the marketplace, but they're temporary. And the idea is that Congress should actually pass these into law. The term there is codified. Congress should codify these rules on short-term, limited-duration plans and association health plans that provide more affordable, flexible options for coverage. That can be done on a bipartisan basis today. There's a developing academic support for it, think tank support for it. We just don't have the political will because some people, some elected officials don't want free market options. Even though they would benefit the consumer, 
They think that's going down the wrong path. What they really want is centralized government controlled insurance. So regardless of the logic, regardless of these options that are out there, there are things that can be done to really help the consumer, help have a better health insurance program and plan in place. There are those who just want a one size fits all government control to be sure that you have the coverage that the government thinks you should have. But the opposite of that is giving options to people and assuming that they're adults who can make their own choices about their own family needs. The president should encourage states that block access to these plans, these short-term limited-duration plans. He should encourage states that block access to these plans to lift restrictions and provide the residents with affordable coverage so they can receive care from medical professionals and the facilities that that individual, that family, knows and trusts. You know, the most trusting relationship is between a patient and the provider. That's what we need to get back to with any of these options. Let's create a financing mechanism so that people who need health care can find a way to finance that health care with the insurance products that they need. And everybody doesn't need the same insurance product. Everybody doesn't need the same coverage. You know, there are advertisements on TV today. You can see it most any night. For auto insurance, and the whole thrust of that commercial is only by what you need. Why is that okay for, for auto insurance, but it's not okay for health insurance? We just have a different market and set of regulations and a different history and a different push politically as what we should do about health insurance. We don't have anybody trying to say the federal government should take over auto insurance. We should have a national auto insurance standard that requires everybody to have lots of different coverages that somebody in Washington or in the bureaucracy thinks that they should have. But we do in health insurance. Why? Because there are so many people that you can buy their votes if you're a politician by promising them something that's free and that's subsidized. And if you can reach millions and millions of people with that idea, you'll gain some political clout. We know, for example, that under Obamacare, there's subsidies that for a family of four provide subsidies for over income of over $100,000 a year. That's a substantial income above the average of Americans. So why do we do that? Because the politicians want to be able to go back and increase it every more, every year, and buy more votes until ultimately it's all being financed through general revenue and your taxes just go up and up. But you have to pay for things that you don't want in order to give free benefits to somebody else. So there needs to be an elimination of this kind of a concept where I have to always buy what the federal government wants me to buy. We need more choices and more options. So Congress should codify things like health reimbursement arrangements that allow employers to reimburse employees with tax-free dollars for individual market insurance coverage that employees can purchase outside the workplace. Now, 
Congress should also help overwhelm businesses by nullifying the employer mandate that exists out there with its burdensome reporting and regulation requirements and threatened penalties, and they're about to come up in 2021, 2020 and 2021. They should be eliminated. Let's get rid of the reporting requirements and focus on real health insurance reform. States should have new regulatory flexibility and budgeted resources as described in the health care choices proposal that's been put forward, and we've talked about it on this program a number of weeks ago, so that people can respond to the unique needs that they have, and states should allow their residents to respond to the unique needs that they have, because even within a state, while states are very different, areas within a state are very different. We have very rural areas and very urban areas. We have mixed populations of various needs, both on the individual and the small group side and the large group marketplace. If states would do that, they'd be able to improve insurance options for patients, including those with pre-existing conditions. That's the number one area that needs to be covered under any of these reforms is the coverage of pre-existing conditions. They should target those federal subsidies to the most vulnerable patients, those in most need, instead of providing broad subsidies across the market to people who have high incomes. They should just be able to focus those on people in most need. The 2 to 3% of the population that are truly uninsurable, they've got cancer, they've got diabetes, they've got brain injuries, they've got spinal injuries, they've got illnesses and accidents that they're not going to recover from. And if the states would just follow the federal lead in getting rid of some of the rules and restrictions and empower the private sector to deliver care and services by lifting those regulatory restraints and the things that delay and even block innovation. More importantly, they block competition on a state level. We would see a resurgence, a whole new marketplace develop. That would totally change the face of health insurance and health care in this country so that people wouldn't be worrying about going bankrupt from a hospital stay, wouldn't worry about being able to take care of their children's needs. They fall down, break an arm, drink something like a poison that they shouldn't be messing with, but accidents happen so that people can get the care quickly don't fear that they're going to go bankrupt just because an accident befell them or their children. Well, let's take a break. And a lot of these ideas are good and we're talking about. We're going to continue to talk about some of the ideas from the Health Policy Consensus Group. So join us back in just a few minutes. And we'll go through some more really good ideas that are out there that politicians, bureaucrats, government officials can take some action on. And you can help to understand and push forward these ideas, whatever your space of influence is. Be right back. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio as we continue our journey today talking about new ideas, new changes to the marketplace, 
playing off of the changes that have occurred during this COVID-19 pandemic. Most people may not even know about all the changes that have occurred. Temporary regulations suspended, presidential executive orders that change the dynamics of regulation, the removal of regulation, the spirit of getting things done fast. This virus hit us very quickly and spread rapidly across this country, and the response had to be equally fast. If we've relied on the way things have been done for decades and generations, we'd still be trying to figure out how to respond with PPEs and the oxygen um, compressors and the beds, and people be dying all over. There, if we didn't do anything, the projections were that 2 million people would die. And yes, we've had over 100,000, and maybe we'll approach 150, even 200,000 before it's over with. But the point is that we had to make changes and do them rapidly. So some of these ideas about where we're ultimately going with a private health insurance marketplace reinvigorated with the idea that we can make changes rapidly, we can do executive orders, we can drop regulations that are preventing innovation and creativity and competition. So the Galen Institute has put together this healthcare consensus group, this policy group looking at what we can do if we move forward in a free market concept. There's lots of things that can be done. And now that we've done some of these things, let's take those lessons of success and apply them against the broader market. So the Health Policy Consensus Group is saying, make it easier for people to communicate with their medical providers of choice, including by telephone, by email, and video conferencing. Federal government should permanently codify, in other words, make a law, not just executive order and not just relaxing the regulations across states and but codify, change the law about these pandemic-related regulatory reliefs that have been put in place, such as removing federal barriers to telemedicine so patients can receive care without leaving their homes. Before the virus hit, there were a lot of barriers that prevented telemedicine from expanding. Every state in the country, almost 50 different states have had regulations limiting, preventing, opening up. Some of them had experience, some of them didn't. Some of them had doctors in the legislature that understood and could explain to other legislators how all this works. But now we know it works. And some states have suspended the requirement, for example, that out-of-state doctors must get a new state-specific license before they can practice in a different state. That has allowed medical providers from across the country to help patients, for example, in New York City and other epicenters of the pandemic. Congress should now follow suit, permanently allowing patients 
who get care funded by federal programs to see doctors of their choice no matter in which state they are licensed. These guild wars, these local debates that are constantly coming up, claiming proprietary use of the laws in the state. Well, you know, if I'm traveling and I'm in North Carolina, New York, Washington State, and I get sick, a doctor can work on me. But if I call in from Florida, that doctor might not be able to treat me. That makes no sense in today's modern world. Plus, with government programs, there has been an increase in the reimbursements. People don't do things in the medical field. Doctors and hospitals aren't going to do very much unless they're paid for those services. Only recently have I gotten phone calls describing my test results or setting up a telemedicine visit so I don't have to travel back to Atlanta where I used to live and all my key doctors are back there. I can now do telemedicine. Let's make that permanent. And let's really incentivize hospitals and doctors to utilize telemedicine. I have a family member who is a PT nurse. She runs a PT department for pediatrics. And during the virus, they didn't want people coming into the hospital that might be exposed to the virus. So they went to telemedicine. Can you believe that you can actually do telemedicine on little babies? What happened was that the physical therapist got a doll, would go online with the parent and show the parent how to move the legs and the arms and create better muscles, memory on on what's going on with that child as they need development, they need some, some help and some care. Well, they were getting reimbursed for that. I just heard recently that even though it was a success, even though the physical therapist enjoyed being able to do that, they could do it from their home. They didn't even have to be in the hospital, which created other potential exposures for the provider of care. That that hospital, and I won't mention a name because they would be embarrassed, are dismantling that telemedicine program for pediatric physical therapy. There's no real reason to do that. But again, the patient is not the consumer. The real consumer is who pays the bill, and that's government programs. And government programs ought to be paying and reimbursing to an equal extent the time spent doing telemedicine services for things like PT. So achieving this goal of making some of these things permanent will also require policymakers to help patients and medical providers to see each other more easily. President Trump should use his bully pulpit to encourage states to do more to lift burdensome rules and regulations that interfere with easier access to care, including permanently lifting certificate of need restrictions and allowing more flexible practices, such as letting pharmacists increase the number of tests they can perform. Congress, too, should do more, starting by repealing limits on physician-owned hospitals, which have a track record 
of delivering high-quality, affordable care. Most people in the general public don't understand this infighting that's been going on for decades about how you can access care as a patient. There are limitations and restrictions that you don't even know about. Let's take certificate of need that was just mentioned. Do you know that in some states, if a hospital wanted to start up and provide services in competition with another hospital, that they are restricted because they would need what's called a certificate of need or a CON. Certificate of need says you have to prove that you're needed. And in many cases, you have to have a certificate of how many beds you're going to set up. and has to be approved by some bureaucratic operation. And guess who controls the certificates of need? The existing hospitals. So do you think they want competition for their cancer center, for their maternity wards, their prenatal care services? No. So as a result, it's very difficult to have the kind of competition. Now, in the old days, it might have made some sense even then. Because back then, the idea was that the more hospitals that were created the more services had to be provided. They sort of generated their own revenue. Well, now the opposite is happening. We have so few hospitals that there's no real competition. And so we need to create some competition in the marketplace by allowing more hospitals, inpatient and outpatient services, to be offered up to the general public. Physician-owned hospitals... Most people don't fully understand and appreciate that a hospital is just a brick-and-mortar building with lots of equipment stored in it for physician use. That physicians, for the most part, have to be allowed by the hospital to even practice in that hospital, to do surgeries, to be an attending physician to the patient that's admitted to the hospital. But the hospital itself doesn't do anything except coordinate the facility and make sure everything's clean, that the room's available, but it is a facility that's used by physicians. And physician-owned hospitals would be a great way to expand the competition because the physicians who would own a hospital would know what is really needed in that hospital rather than a non-physician who tries to figure out what the physicians need. Now, that doesn't say that there aren't some really good non-physician-run hospitals. But there's no reason why physician-owned hospitals should have limitations, which they do in many states. So those limitations need to be repealed so that there can be some competition in creating these hospitals that could be physician-owned. Because physicians are starting to take more and more out of the hospital. They can do things on an outpatient basis without having the high expenses of a hospital. So that would allow choices and options for people who need care to use these alternative facilities, which could be much cheaper. People are scared to death these days to go into a hospital. Because if they're there just for a few days, the bill coming out of that can be tens of thousands of dollars. And people are scared of that. And that scare is what drives people to say, well, let's have the federal government take it over. So there's a reason for some of this that people want 
because it's going to drive people towards a national health insurance reform of a Medicare for all or a single payer system. Not because that's a better system, but because the opposition to free markets has put in all these restrictions and limitations to people actually using good quality services, affordable services on the outside. Well, I hope this segment was somewhat informative and helpful for people listening in. I want to take a quick break. and We're going to come back and go through the last few areas that really can have an impact on health reform in this country. The Health Policy Consensus Group has really put together some good ideas that need to be taken to heart by our politicians. And with your understanding, your acceptance, your approval, your support of politicians who know this can be done, we can make a difference. Stay tuned. We'll be right back for our last segment after these commercials. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the final segment this week of Healthcare Insight. I'm Ron Bachman, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. We also welcome you if you're listening through other avenues like LinkedIn or YouTube or any podcast that you may be listening to. Uh, it's been great to reach out to the audience with new ideas on health reform. And I hope you're learning a lot about not only the proposals that um, I've put together over the last number of weeks on personalized health insurance or the series we had on the secrets of health insurance reform. Today we're talking about and want to wrap up our session that um, includes information that's been put out by the Galen Institute and a group uh, that they put together, a health policy consensus group. We've been going through some of their concepts and ideas. I'm going to wrap up uh, that information that's available on the Galen Institute um, uh, website and is available on the Heritage Foundation website. So what we want to talk about here is making it easier for patients to own and control accounts to pay their own care for their own care. To achieve this goal, Congress should allow everyone to have a health savings account regardless of how their health insurance is structured. In other words, for those of you listening out there, some of you may know this, but if you want to put aside some money into a health savings account, as it's called, an HSA, you have to have a specific plan design for your insurance. It's actually legally defined and it's called a high deductible health plan, an HDHP in the language of the bureaucrats. And if you have an HDHP or a high deductible health plan, that allows you to put money into a health savings account, which is a tax benefit account for healthcare expenses. The money you put in is tax deductible from your normal income, so you're not paying taxes on those dollars that you set aside. The dollars can accumulate tax-free, and when you pull those dollars out, you pull them out without being taxed on them. So it's what they call triple tax advantage. That is a great way to empower consumers. So if you're looking for a consumer-oriented, patient-centered 
process for developing reform, you want to expand on the health savings account so that the dollars that are being paid to providers is coming from your pocket. You're making the choices as to whether you want an x-ray, you want a CAT scan, you want a, a PET scan, you want all sorts of options that may have some costs associated with them. So you can make that decision. You don't need the most expensive, high-tech, high-powered um, service available to find out whether or not you you have problems with your knee or your ankle or your arm. Uh, you can make those choices. Right now, you just want the very best, the most expensive, because as a consumer, you're not paying for it. The insurance company is paying for it. So that means we overutilize services. We, we buy too much health care because a third party is paying for it. And that concept of third-party reimbursement distorts normal economics. When you're buying anything else, you'll look at the cost-benefit ratio. Now, you shouldn't always do that with healthcare because healthcare, you want to be sure that you're taking care of your health. If something goes wrong with your health, you don't get the right care. Obviously, that's much more impactful than if you didn't buy the right couch. But there are also variations in what you need, and you know what you need and how significant it is in order to determine the right kind of product that you want. And if you're paying the bill, you'll be more insightful, more careful, more cost-conscious about the services that you use because many times you really don't need it, but you do it because somebody else is paying the bill. So instead of having that structured, legally identified high deductible health plan that allows you to do a health savings account, what this health policy consensus group is saying, let any plan, let any plan with any design establish a health savings account. That way people, as they accumulate money into these accounts, they can take a higher deductible, and as a consequence, they can have lower premiums. So it should raise... The health savings account contribution limits as well. There is a limit to how much money can be put in. That should be eliminated. The plan design requirements should be eliminated. And the accounts should be used to pay premiums. That's not currently allowed. You can't really take the dollars out to pay your premiums. They have to pay for health insurance expenses. But it should be able to pay for the premiums of your insurance. It should be used to be able to pay for any supplemental policy that you might have, like a direct primary care uh, services and fees, concierge services. It should be allowed if you're participating in one of the uh, sharing ministries. Uh, those are great concepts that came out of the Obamacare, uh, but you can't use HSAs if you're part of a, a sharing ministry. Why? Because a sharing ministry is not a high qualified high deductible health plan. So, again, we should open up the doors and allow people to set up more health savings accounts or whatever you want to call it. If you want to create a new account, a universal savings account, a universal health savings account, whatever it is, uh, that can be structured and Congress should allow that. And it would help individuals then to better finance their health care needs. Keep in mind that what Obamacare did was focus on premiums as the only way to finance your health care. When in reality, there are multiple ways to finance your health care needs. Premium is the first, and that's the one we always think about because that's been the traditional way that we finance our um, health care needs. The second is through 
savings accounts, whether that's a tax advantage, which is the best uh, account, a health savings account, the tax advantage. You could put money into your bank account. It wouldn't have the tax advantages, but that's another way people might want to pay for some of their health care expenses. And there's a third way that's sort of lost in a lot of the proposals, and that is allowing reimbursement for healthy activities, allow for incentives and rewards for doing the right things to help stay healthy, to recover, to follow your doctor's orders, take your medication. That's the third way that during the year, after you buy the policy, after you set up your health savings account or whatever that account might wind up being called, you can then, in a dynamic type of coverage that you buy, a dynamic insurance policy, if you're doing the right things, the insurance company should be putting money in uh, as what I call a shared savings. You're doing the right things, keeping costs down. The insurance company should share part of that savings back to you because otherwise they, they reap the benefits of you doing all the right and healthy things to stabilize your condition or to get better. So there's multiple ways to finance, and that's the key to any kind of a proposal. Now, I noticed that the Galen Institute does not include that third item, and I would highly recommend to them that they do that. So the other way is patients should be protected from surprise medical bills by requiring transparent information and pricing along with advanced cost estimates so the patients aren't sideswiped by unexpected out-of-network charges. This is a game the industry plays. This is a game that goes on that your insurance companies wind up uh, being hit unnecessarily because, um, and then they pass a lot of that hit back on to the uh, to, back on to the customers. We don't really know always what the cost is of the medical service. Your doctor many times can't tell you what the cost is of that office visit or that test because they don't really know. They made so many negotiated rates that they don't know which one you're involved in and they don't know what they're going to get paid until they submit the bill to the insurance company. Well, a lot of times they submit the bill. It turns out that it's not in network or it's not covered exactly. So, the transparency of information and pricing is absolutely critical uh, with any kind of reform. So the debate today is between those who want to exert even more government control over our health sector and those who favor giving patients more choice and control and allowing the creativity that we have seen in this whole COVID crisis to allow it to flourish. There are a lot of specific policy recommendations that can be made. There's a lot of ideas. But I think from the general public, those of you listening in today, the real issue is what kind of future do you want for you or your children? Because how you vote makes a big difference. People don't understand the power of the vote. Keep in mind that we have Obamacare by the vote, one single vote, of a dead person. Now let that sink in for a moment. We have Obamacare by one single vote of a dead person. Now let me explain for those of you who didn't follow politics a few years ago. The Senate had a filibuster-proof 60-vote majority on the Democratic side, which means they could pass anything they want. Because in the Senate, you have to have a majority but in order to get to a vote at the end of the day, you have to have a filibuster-proof majority. And the Democrats had that with 60, which is what the limit is uh, to break a filibuster. 
Well, they passed Obamacare with 60 votes in the Senate. Now, the process typically is it would go over to the House. The House would put together a bill. It would have some differences from the Senate, and they would get together in a conference committee, work out the differences, then it would go back to the House and the Senate, and each would vote on the final bill, and if it passed both houses, the House and the Senate, it would go to the president for signature. But what happened with Obamacare? After the 60 votes in the Senate, it went over to the House. In the meantime, by the time it went over to the House, Ted Kennedy, Senator Ted Kennedy, Democrat, who was one of those 60, died. And the replacement for his seat was very much in contention. And Senator Scott Brown won that seat in Massachusetts, who ran against the passage of Obamacare. And a Republican was elected as Senator of Massachusetts, of all places. So the Democrats did not have that filibuster-proof majority anymore. They only had 59 votes. So what happened? The House of Representatives pulled a legislative trick. They passed word for word exactly what the Senate had passed, which meant that it didn't have to go to conference committee because there were no differences between the House and the Senate version. And therefore, it didn't have to have another vote in the Senate. And so by passing exactly word for word what the Senate had passed, it got to go to President Obama for his final signature. Now, he assured us during his campaign he would not sign anything that was partisan. It had to be nonpartisan. In other words, it had to have Republicans and Democrats supporting it. But that didn't happen. So we wound up with Obamacare with only votes from Democrats and only votes after they accepted the first vote in the Senate. And therefore, it was passed by that one vote from Ted Kennedy, who had since passed away. So we got Obamacare by the vote of one dead person. And the result is we've had Obamacare now for over 10 years. We can make the same kind of a difference, not using political tricks, but we can make the same difference in getting the right votes and right, get voting the right people in the office that can make the changes to create a private system and not a government-controlled system. Well, I hope you've had some interesting thoughts and some interesting ideas and some revelations as to what's going on out there around what other people are doing in order to help create a private free market system. We'll come back next week and we'll continue the discussion on Healthcare Insight and take a look at some more options, some more ideas, what's going on out there as this whole world begins to focus on the election and what's going to happen with one of the major segments of this country, health insurance and health care. We'll talk to you next week. Have a good week. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.